Sorry for the interruption. Coming up is a podcast brought to you by the dedicated and diverse volunteers at 3CR. Our podcasts are community powered, and for the month of June, we're asking listeners to donate to the station to help keep us going. We rely on the generous donations of the community to survive. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate and show your support for community owned and community run media. Happy listening. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Good afternoon, gentle listeners, and welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us on the wireless today is Dr. Julie Gottlieb, who is a professor of modern history at the University of Sheffield and the author of Feminine Fascism, Women in Britain's Fascist Movement. Thanks for joining us, Julie. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So the book, it was, it was published a little while ago, but it's just come out in its second edition. Could you tell us a little bit about what it is and why you wrote it? So I actually, I wrote it, well, going on 25, 26, 27 years ago when I started work doing the research. So I started the research essentially in 19, around 1994. It was my PhD uh, thesis. And then, uh, it, you know, it, it evolved quite quickly from PhD thesis to book, which was gratifying. Uh, and it came out in 2000. Uh, and then there was this 20-year uh, period where, you know, it, it was a slow burn uh, success, I suppose. And it, it, it became relatively well known, both in the field specifically of British fascist studies, but also uh, due to the you know increasing interest in gender and, and women's history within the, the context of fascism. And I was very pleased that my publisher wanted to publish a second edition in time really for, it, it was coincidental, but in time for the 20th anniversary of its first publication. But it was a very different moment uh, when I started doing that research, a very different historical moment in the mid-1990s when I was working on this in a number of ways. First of all, an, a few of the people who, I, who were the subjects of my research were still alive and kicking, uh, kicking about. Uh, and I was able to make contact with them. And that uh, raised some interesting and, and kind of difficult issues uh, as well. But, you know, from the point of view of research, it was it was enriching. Although I, I did have some personal and ethical dilemmas dealing uh, directly with those um, who had been activists in, in the 30s, fascist activists in the 30s. Um, and of course, it was a different time politically than when the second edition appeared in the, you know, in the dying days. And we didn't know that, but in the dying days of Trumpism. British fascists were the first organisation of its kind to form in the United Kingdom or the British fascisti as they were known and women played a, a central role in that organisation. I was wondering if you could tell listeners a little bit about this uh, the British fascisti and also how it differed from its Italian counterpart and thirdly what did it owe to British conservatism and empire? Yeah thank you the, the question about the British fascisti is, is, an, is an important one and of course it is the cornerstone of the history of fascism uh, in Britain and what is absolutely uh, you know counterintuitive is that that organisation the British fascisti is formed in May 1923 by a woman uh, and by a young woman. 
uh, Rothal Lintorn Orman. She had been uh, 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 very much wedded to the idea of empire and to, you know, imperial kind of grandeur and thinking. Uh, she had uh, kind of cut her teeth in, 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 in imperial organizations. She had been one of the kind of leading and pioneering uh, women in the Girl Guide or the Girl, what was then the Girl Scouts movement before the First World War. During the war, she carried on with her uh, active, active patriotism um, and she joined the war effort. She was a, a a motor car driver and so forth, and she saw action. And she was, you know, really a kind of uh, um, textbook picture of the patriotic ex, you know, service woman, and then in the immediate post-war years, ex-service woman. So the story of, of Rotha Lintor Norman is, is, as I say, very important, and as I say, largely counterintuitive, in that we wouldn't expect a fascist movement to be founded, and eventually in its story, to be actually led uh, by a woman, and by a coterie uh, of women around her. Uh, that also explains, ultimately, uh, I think, the very limited success of that first organization, the British Fascisti. But it was while she was the the, the the apocryphal story, the myth is that while she was uh, weeding in her Somerset kitchen garden and she had just read the news and she found out that the uh, Socialist uh, Party or the Labour Party had sent a delegation to an international conference in, in Hamburg, she was horrified by the specter of reds under beds and so forth and the, the, the Sovietization of Britain as, as she would have seen it. And uh, she came upon the idea to, to start her own organization, which she termed uh, called the British Fascisti. She put uh, first um, a series of advertisements in 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 the newspaper called The Patriot, which says all all it says all you need to know about it. A very uh, radical right, far right uh, newspaper, and she soon gained a following. You know, this is 1923. Uh, the first kind of years of the organization, there are uh, indications that it, it might have uh, some 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 influence, uh, but it was never a political party. It was really a pressure group, an extra parliamentary uh, group, modeled very much on her earlier experiences of you know being a girl, 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 girl scout, and and and, have, and being involved in these kind of um, you know. Uh, league-like organizations that had uh, been uh, popular uh, and that had defined the so-called radical right before the First World War. So they never contested elections. They actually offered themselves as stewards at conservative party meetings, and they encouraged their membership to vote conservative at election time. So it was very much a, you know, an extreme uh, organization on the peripheries of the conservative party, or at least that's how they wanted to position themselves. The conservative the conservatives themselves were much more ambivalent about working with the BF, the British Fascisti, renamed the British fascists in 1924. That's important too, because there was this ultimate contradiction, this the anomaly of having a uh, patriotic ultranationalist organization that takes as its, as its name and its title a, a foreign term. So that's really the story, uh, the early history uh, of the British Fascisti. And by 1926, there is kind of a moment of reckoning during the general strike. And the movement uh, is significantly kind of reduced and pared down and loses um, its more kind of notable leading figures. And at that point, uh, Rothar Lintor Norman, who up till then had been called the founder, really becomes the leader uh, of the movement because there's no other really viable candidate. And it this movement peters on, uh, essentially, through the late 20s uh, into the 1930s. When Mosley's movement uh, comes into being in 1932, there's an attempt by Mosley to integrate the British fascists, the British fascists, uh, they don't want to be integrated. They they want to maintain their independence. And then in 1935, the movement has has 
you know, completely kind of withered away. And sadly, uh, Lothal Lintor Norman uh, died in 1935. And I say sadly, because she was only 40 years old. And she, we know that, you know, she was suffering from alcohol and drug addiction. And, you know, there is a, a, a a case to be made that she is possibly a, a good example of a an example of of a woman who you know suffered from what we today would call PTSD, kind of the 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 impact and you know that I'm not sure how clinical we can be about this, but certainly the the, the trauma of war, the kind of the uh, you know the the, the idea of, of of shell shock might well have triggered um, her other uh, problems and, and mental illness and addiction. So it's a it's a rich story, uh, rich from the point of view of uh, of gender history of women's history. But also, it really makes British fascism much more distinctive and, and in many ways, more unique in comparison to continental examples. What was the attraction of fascism to the women who had emerged from the suffragette movement? Well, thank you. And that's a really important question. And, you know, that issue and that the, those stories get an awful lot of attention for probably quite obvious reasons. But we must be very careful there because, yes, as you say, there were a handful of women ho- whose trajectory was from militant uh, uh, suffragism, from being suffragettes, being members of uh, active members of Pankhurst's uh, Women's Social and Political Union before for the war to fascism and to Mosley's fascism in the 1930s. But let's remember how many there were. There were three. We're not talking even about a handful. We're talking about three. So these are three stories which, you know, in the larger scheme of things are are, are clearly kind of aberrations and, and very much uh, outside the norm. These three women, each of their stories is, you know, important and fascinating and, and reveals some, some, some important dynamics, problematizes gender politics and politics in general in this period. So I think in in and of themselves, each of these stories and the three of them together are important, uh, give us real insight into, you know, the complexity of uh, political and gender history and and gender politics uh, in the period. But again, I'll say it, uh, you know, to to even more emphasis, uh, there were only three. Now, these three women are uh, Mary Richardson, who was already notorious because she had had already had an important kind of nickname, a slasher Mary. Um, In 1914, she'd walked into the National Gallery in London and she'd uh, slash, she slashed uh, Velasquez's painting of the Rockaby Venus. And this, of course, was front page news at the time, you know, a a, a great suffragette outrage as it would have been portrayed at the moment. And she had done this in order to draw attention to the fact that Mrs. Pankhurst, Emmeline Pankhurst, was being held in prison in, in, in Scotland and she wanted obviously to draw attention to this and to to you know to force her release she then went on to other types of, of political activism and uh, in you know after during the war after the war and then she you know she she did stand as a as as a as a candidate for for parliament, didn't get anywhere with that. And by the late 20s, early 30s, she's looking for different political answers to her questions. And she joins for a moment Mosley's new party. And then in 1934, she comes out um, as a a member of the British Union of Fascists and quickly is taken on given, you know, roles of responsibility and uh, very public facing roles. So she becomes for a short time leader of the women's section. So she's a real poster child for the the BUF. It's a a real coup to get someone who already has this reputation 
and this kind of uh, this, this public profile to lead their women's section. Let, let us fr- remember that Mary Richardson doesn't stay in this position very long. By 1935, she's left the movement. Uh, and we know from other sources because the uh, she just disappears from the, uh, the, the, the black shirt press. But we know from other sources that one of the main reasons that she left, one was because there was conflict, personal conflict between her and, and, and other leadership figures, including Ma Mosley, uh, Maude Mosley, Mosley, uh, uh, Oswald Mosley's mother, who uh, seemed to be quite involved in, in interfering in the politics of the movement. But most importantly, she claimed, uh, Mary Richardson claimed that she left because she didn't think that the BUF's promises about what they would provide for women and uh, were, you know, there was no, they were un, 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 unfounded and, 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 and hypocritical. So she left for feminist reasons, if you like. But then there were two other figures whose story is very different, certainly in the uh, you know, they don't leave. They're there till the bitter end. Uh, first is Nora Elam, who had been a, again, a, a militant uh, suffragist, a suffragette before the war. During the war, she moves already very much uh, to the right. She moves, uh, you know, to the right, to the far right. And this is uh, a pattern that she, uh, this is alongside a, a handful of of suffragette leaders who uh, take this kind of patriotic turning, this ultra patriotic turning, and we shouldn't forget that the two two figures to take exactly that um, direction of travel are none other than Emmeline and Christabel Pankhurst. The WSPU, the the Women's Social and Political Union, its roots were in the the socialist uh, movement in the Independent Labour Party, but you know radicalization and for a number of reasons we see that uh, you know by by the by the war at least. Emily and Christabel, Sylvia, Emmeline's other most prominent daughter, takes the opposite uh, direction of travel and, and, and moves off to the Communist Party and uh, in, in the in the 30s, more to socialism and, 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 and very explicitly to anti-fascism. And then, of course, there's the Australian story, um, Adela uh, Pankhurst as well. Um, but in any case, the, the, the Adela and, and, and Sylvia are not taking this route in, in, in the war. Um, it is Emmeline and Chris, her favorite daughter, Christabel, who do. And they become increasingly uh, ready to work with the government and offer their services to the government. They oppose strikes and, and, stri- and, and they become essentially propagandists for for strike breaking. And Nora Ellum joins them on that journey and goes even further. Uh, She also stands uh, for parliament in 1918, the first time that women have the right to to, to put themselves up um, as parliamentary candidates. She doesn't win, but her platform is uh, obnoxiously uh, extremist anti-German, uh, you know, xenophobic and so forth. So a real foretaste of what is to come in, in her political kind of journey. And then she joins the British Union of Fascists and she's there till the bitter end. Um, and her story is also interesting in so far as as a suffragette, she had committed militant acts and she'd ended up in Holloway Prison as suffragette, uh, as many uh, suffragettes did. And in 1940, she's arrested uh, and de- or detained uh, under Defense Regulation 18B1A. And she ends up where? In Holloway Prison again. And she spends much of the war in Holloway uh, interned uh, under the defense regulations. So there's a, a real kind of poetry and symmetry, if you like, um, to her story in that sense. And she also sees that symmetry because 
because, you know, she makes arguments during the 30s in the BUF press and in its uh, more intellectually uh, ambitious publications like the uh, uh, the Fascist Quarterly. She you know makes this connection between suffragette militancy and fascist militancy. To her, there is a, a underlying consistency between the, the methods and the motivation of kind of revolutionary feminism before the war and what she perceives or what she defines as revolutionary fascism, uh, you know, in the between the wars. Then if I may talk about, briefly about the third, we also have uh, Commandant Mary Allen, uh, also a suffragette uh, and also, you know, uh, attracted to the uh, more radical right a vein of, of the movement. Uh, and especially, you know, she actually had connections with Rotha Lintorn Orman, uh, both personal co- connections, but, uh, you know, they were very similar in, in their uh, ideas of, of, of what women should be. Uh, Mary Allen was a co-founder of the Women's Police movement during the the First World War. And she spent the rest of the 20s and 30s going around the world advocating for the inclusion of women in police services. And she was herself called Commandant Mary Allen, self-styled. And then then she was, you know, flirting with the uh, fascist movement throughout the 20s and 30s, but she comes out uh, as a member of the British Union in 1940 and, and claims that um, she's throwing in her lot with, with Mosley by that stage because she's in agreement with their anti-war policy. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Professor Julie Gottlieb about feminine fascism. The, the title of the book is Feminine Fascism. Can you explain why you would term it or title the book that as opposed to fascist feminism? What's the importance of that distinction? Well, thank you for that question. And it's a really, really fundamental one. I could have uh, titled it Feminist Fascism. I would have sold a lot more copies, I'm sure, because there would have been an appetite on various points of the political spectrum and something as provocative and, and, and really kind of pushing people's buttons as that kind of title would, would have been. But it was, I thought, completely wouldn't reflect uh, what I was trying to say. It was, it was contradictory to my core arguments. My core arguments are that, you know, we can think about women's political activism outside the framework of our understanding or our current definitions, or even contemporary definitions, contemporary to the 1930s, contemporary definitions uh, of feminism. Uh, Feminism is ultimately, uh, and certainly, you know, going back to the 20s and 30s, it was a minority position. Uh, It had become much more mainstream. And, you know, after the successes of the suffrage movement, you know, and, and the granting of the uh, partial women's enfranchisement in 1918. And then in 1928, the equal franchise. This is, of course, in, in, in Britain. You know, feminism had become a kind of almost a moot point because, you know, that the main goals of the feminist movement had been achieved. But at the same time, that women became activists in all kinds of other political contexts. And they had a, an ambivalent, often, uh, relationship with the whole notion and ideology and the kind of strategies of, of feminism or of suffragism and, and how it evolved later. So, you know, but by the 1920s and 1930s, there was still an active and, and vibrant feminist movement, but a much pared down one in any case. And where women's politics was really happening was outside of the 
smaller kind of ginger group uh, feminist associations and organizations like the uh, new sec, the National Union of Societies for Equal Suffrage, for instance. So these are, you know, interesting organizations. They're worthy. They're carrying on the fight. There are splits uh, between what they call the old feminism and the new feminism in that context. But as I say, the vast majority of women who are being politicized, who are joining politics now that they have the rights not only to vote, but of course, to become uh, members of parliament and to uh, uh, to do uh, most things and there is a you know a real flowering of women's professionalization women scoring firsts in all kinds of areas uh, of political social economic life cultural life and so on in this period and you know we do have to understand that women's history is not one and the same as the history of feminism so women are being mainstreamed in and and being mobilized uh, by all the political parties in this period labor, uh, of course, which we which we know, and but of course the conservatives are as if not more successful at mobilizing women in this period, and uh, the Communist Party too. Uh, uh, the liberals, the liberals have a longer probably tradition and a longer story of success in integrating women, and the fascists are no different in that sense. And you know this is this is women's politics, not necessarily in the framework, but you know in concentric circles uh, around uh, ideas of kind of feminist mobilization. How did the participation rate of women in groups like uh, Mosley's Black Shirts compare with other parties across the political spectrum? Yes, and that it's it, it is a really important question because it it gives us some important you know comparative perspective there. So when I first started doing research, I thought on you know on this topic, I, I didn't think I'd find very much, and very quickly I was um, you know re- pleasantly surprised from the point of view of a researcher at least at. Uh, you know, the prominence of women uh, in the movement and the, the the variety of roles that they were given to play, you know, as black shirts and, and you know, and, 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 at administrative level, but also as, as activists and as kind of frontline activists, as direct action activists, I would say, we'd say today. And from the statistics that we can find, of course, their membership figures were, were never published. Uh, they were kept secret. And, and, and if there were, uh, records of this, they would probably have, they were probably destroyed either by the movement itself or by when documents were were collected. But we do know from, as I say, from various figures, we can, we get a picture that actually women represented about 25% of BUF participants. And, and, you know, those who were marching, those who were stewards at meetings, those who, you know, were participating in public events. How does this compare to the other political parties? Uh, well, Hard to tell in a sense. I mean, each of the political parties has, uh, you know, in, in the post-war period with women's enfranchisement, you know, they spruce up their women's sections and they, they work hard to recruit women and to mobilize women. And they have considerable success, as I, as I probably indicated already, the Conservative Party is very successful. By uh, the late 1920s, the Conservative Party is eager to recruit more men because it's done so well amongst uh, women, uh, certainly, uh, you know, to, as party workers and so on. But what is interesting about the British Union of Fascists is that in 1935, after the general election of that year, it starts to announce its prospective parliamentary candidates. So this is after the 1935 general election. And of course, there was another general election expected around 1940, which we understand why that never took place. So none of these uh, prospective parliamentary candidates had their chance to, you know, to, to run a campaign. But a uh, hundred prospective, uh, you know, fascist prospective parliamentary candidates were announced. And amongst this hundred were one or 10 women. 
So easy, easy maths, uh, even for me, uh, 10% uh, of, of their, um, of their candidates uh, were women. So that was better than any of the other, poli- that percentage, that ratio was better than any of the other mainstream political parties at the time. So, you know, this is an indication of something. This is an indication uh, of, you know, paying at least lip service, if not more, to the idea that women can find their political home in the fascist movement. And, you know, they exploited that message to the hilt. And, you know, it, it is key uh, to much of their own kind of propaganda and their kind of self, self-description, self-deception about where they stand on the position of women in society and in the political uh, system. One of the unifying factors that seems to have driven a number of women, obviously men, to join the fascist movement uh, in, the, in the interwar period is a reaction to uh, the trauma of the First World War and also uh, the Red Menace as it was manifested in things like the 1926 general strike. What do you think was the kind of, what were the factors that drove women in particular uh, to join the fascist movement during this period? The question of motivation is is a vital one, and and one that will fascinate us as as historians, as psychologists, as psychohistorians, as sociologists, and so forth. And you know, I think there are certain patterns, but at the same time, there are more patterns than than we might expect. Uh, a lot of the women, you know, first of all, the membership profile that you know uh, amongst women is quite diverse. I mean, there are there were stereotypes of, of membership that a number of commentators and critics kind of identified at the time. But we have to break those down and those can, can easily be problematized. And one of the things that I did in, in, in feminine fascism was that I provided a who's who uh, at the back, uh, which, you know, where I was, you know, recording everything I could find at the time. This was pre kind of uh, at Excel days. But, you know, I had potted biographies uh, as best I could, at least of, you know, a range, the, the range of women that I found. And, uh, you know, there, there were women who appear as prominent, who take uh, active roles in the movement across class lines, across uh, regionally diverse, definitely generationally diverse, and also politically diverse. So many of them take uh, unexpected routes. There are, you know, a, a fair number who come via the Conservative Party, and some who actually stay, uh, who hold joint membership uh, in the Conservative Party and, and the Fascist Party. Someone like um, the Countess Down, uh, she never, you know, relinquished her membership uh, and her role as a Conservative, and still uh, main, you know, remained a, a prominent member of of the British Union of Fascists. But then there were young women, someone like Olive Hawkes. Uh, an interesting uh, figure for your listeners, I think, because she ended her days in Perth in Australia. You know, she, uh, her profile is very different. She was a very young woman when she joined, you know, in her teens. And by the, you know, w- outbreak of war, she emerges as leader of the women's section. And she, you know, she was as staunch as they came, you know, probably from a kind of lower middle class background, and very, you know, full of aspiration. And she was a writer, she wrote for the BUF press in the first uh, instance. And then after the well, during the war, she was in and she was interned amongst the longest of those who were interned. So she really was no in no mood to repent or to change her her ways. And after the war, you know, we we lose track of her for a couple of years, and then she she comes back, you know, into public life, if you like, as a novelist. And no one mentions that only a couple of years ago she was in prison as a fascist. And then we lose her again after she writes about three novels. She also writes a, a self help book together with uh, someone called Eustace Chesser, um, who is a 
way, well-known psychoanalyst and, and kind of popular psychology, uh, writes a lot of popular psychology. And she, you know, she partners up with him. And I believe that partnership was more than professional as well. And they write this, this kind of self-help book for young women. And then she disappears again, only to be tracked down by a, a very, uh, determined researcher, someone called Jeffrey Walder, who found that she had, you know, remarried, had children, moved to Perth, and then just died alone in Perth in the, about the mid 1990s. So, you know, her, again, not clear what happened to her politically after the war. I mean, she was the the most devoted uh, fascist. She, she um, you know, really lived the life of a black shirt in every way possible. And then she kind of has the second and third kind of coming or third, second or third kind of lie, lie you know, the many lives of all of Hawks uh, might be a way of putting it. So, you know, but again, her story is a, is a good example of, of the range of, of women who were attracted to the movement. One theme that I think runs through the book is, or there's a, an insistence that the women who participated not be viewed as uh, victims. They made choices to participate in, in fascist politics. And yet it seems counterintuitive that uh, women would voluntarily and fulsomely participate in a uh, an ideology and a, a movement that is generally understood as being patriarchal. I'm wondering if you could just uh, offer a few comments on that seeming contradiction. Sure, thank you. And that is one of the key dynamics of the of the book and of the study. And I stress that women had agency, and they had agency, especially in the British context and in, in the context of British movement. And it's not easy, you know. It's it's a, a false comparison to pit um, you know British fascist women against uh, women in Nazi Germany or women in fascist Italy where they had no choice where you know they they you know some of them might have been uh, uh, absolutely devoted uh, Nazis and, and fascists but ultimately you know they 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 were working within the context of a regime. Um, so in Britain, it is a movement that is on the peripheries that is considered, you know, increasingly uh, as the time goes on, uh, you know, uh, an outsider movement, per, you know, they're considered political pariahs, moves are take, made against them by the government as much as possible to, to uh, stem the tide. So to actually come out, if you like, for in a movement like this, to, you know, to devote yourself to this, to uh, attach yourself to such a movement is a, a sign of, of of some kind of radicalism, rebelliousness uh, at the least, um, and there's a, a a really kind of illustrative, you know, uh, vividly illustrative uh, anecdote uh, by by one. Um, former member who says we weren't just tea makers. Um, and that, you know, the point is that when I joined the movement, I was making a striking statement about independence, uh, independent thinking, you know, thinking for myself, uh, and not just, you know, following the the mainstream. So in that sense, women do uh, feel that they are uh, expressing their independence, going, you know, against the grain. And there's a certain pride, uh, feminist pride, not necessarily, but a uh, pride in themselves to be, you know, um, taking this much more provocative, uh, much more dangerous uh, stance. I'm not celebrating that. And that's the important difference about what one could do if I'd called it feminist fascism, there would be a, a suggestion that I was celebrating that kind of uh, independence. I wasn't, I was just identifying it. And I, in any case, I don't think that, you know, it's it's um, easy to talk about or to just kind of dismiss women's activism as some kind of moment of false consciousness. I think that's um, reductive and and it really misses the point of the um, of the variety 
of ways in which women, like any other, you know, group or minority, express themselves politically. So, you know, I do think, and we have so many contemporary examples that it, it, it doesn't bear uh, a much, uh, you know, it, it, it will be hopefully convincing. Um, there are, you know, countless women who are who have rejected feminism or the progressive version of feminism and still um, seek. A, a, a public voice and a, and a place in the in the public sphere, and I think we have to see fascist women in the 1930s um, as precursors, as foremothers of figures like Marine Le Pen or, or um, uh, you know, and many 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 others. I, I was wondering if there was a specifically uh, feminist response to feminine uh, fascism. Uh, was there any way, how did the, uh, I guess, the self-described feminists of the period respond to fascism and how did they respond to women's participation in the fascist movement? It's a really important point that you're making here, because even though there is a, a, a definite sexiness to the study of, of fascist women in Britain, we have to remind ourselves that the vast majority of women were anti-fascist at various levels. Uh, um, you know, anti-fascist, some were actively anti-fascist, others were kind of uh, temperamentally uh, anti-fascist um, and, and had no uh, no time um, or certainly no tolerance uh, for women who took this uh, decision to, to don the black shirt. So in my second book called Guilty Women, Foreign Policy and Appeasement uh, in Interwar Britain, um, I have a chapter there specifically on what I call feminist anti-fascism, uh, which is both a sensibility and a kind of set of strategies of, acti of, of active activism. And as I say, the vast majority of political women uh, were uh, fundamentally anti-fascist uh, by instinct, and some, you know, developed a very distinctive and uh, well-articulated and philosophically based feminist interpretations uh, of fascism and, and ways feminist strategies to to combat fascism, both in terms of the small fascist movement in their midst and the regrettable fact that a number of of of, of women had turned to uh, a small but a visible number of women had turned to 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 be handmaidens for Mosley, but, you know, they were as concerned, if not more, much more concerned about what was going on uh, on the continent and fears that, that the British uh, state could take similar, um, uh, similar turns. So I have a chapter in that book called Women's War on Fascism, um, which uh, explains, describes and tries to conceptualize this, this fundamental feminist anti-fascism. And there were a number of prominent figures that we can think of, Virginia Woolf, uh, Winifred Holtby, uh, and, and a number of organizations, uh, uh, Monica Watley, a number of organizations like the Six Point Group and the, the WILF, the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. You know, all of these uh, small but, you know, influential uh, feminist organizations uh, took uh, anti-fascist stance um, at various stages uh, and in various ways during the 1930s. So we really should remember that the big story here, which is much more kind of, uh, much less kind of dramatic, but much more representative of what's really going on on the ground, is the story of how women are preparing themselves, mobilizing and preparing themselves intellectually and psychologically to counter uh, the, the charge of, of fascism at home and abroad. Well, that's all we've got time for. Julie, thanks so much for joining us. If people want to follow you, they can find you on Twitter at Julie V. Gottlieb, and the book is Feminine Fascism. Thank you so much for having me on. All right, Andy, we'll catch you next week. See you then. It's time to speak up, speak out, and speak loud. 
from an idea born on a park bench outside Liberal Party headquarters where hundreds of women told their stories of sexual violence. Introducing Feminist Fridays. Join our open speaking circle to tell your story any way you want. A poem, a speech or a dance. You can even yell it out in the direction of Parliament House because that's where we'll be, on the steps. Feminist Fridays, starting Friday the 30th of April at 12pm. Join us. It's time to unite, heal and take back our power. Feminist Fridays isn't just a protest. We are a non-hierarchical collective ready to destroy the patriarchy, starting with your voice. This event is taking place on stolen Wurundjeri land and voices of First Nations people are prioritised. Hosted by Loud, Angry and Not Sorry. A 3CR supporter. Our Radiothon. Show your support during June 2021. So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria. Not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. Radio Radiothon. Community Powered Radio. To donate, call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au.